Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about Die Hard with a Vengeance. Call me Simon. What do you want? I want to play a game. What kind of game? Simon says. Simon's going to tell Lieutenant McLean what to do and Lieutenant McLean is going to do it. Non-compliance will result in a penalty. What penalty? Another big bang in a very public place. What is it that you want Lieutenant McLean to do? Simon says Lieutenant McLean is to go to the corner of 138th Street or Amsterdam, which is in Harlem, if I'm not mistaken. Kowalski! Lambert! You know where to find McLean? Well, I kind of doubt you're going to find him in church. Well, you better find out what rock he's under. And kick it over. This is a 90s American action thriller buddy film. Directed by John McTiernan, who directed the first Die Hard. The cast includes... Here he is, the one and only winner of the Gemini Crockett Contest. <laughs> <laughs> He's back again, my friends. Also is in this movie is Sexy Alfred. And Frozone, which I think that this movie is making, is actually referenced in The Incredibles uh, with this scene where uh, Zeus Carver is answering a telephone while a, a cop is pointing a gun at him. I have to answer that phone. Get him up! Look, if you have to shoot me, then you go ahead and you shoot me. But I have to answer this phone, all right? I'm here. <laughs> I, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, wait, I've seen this before. Only he was animated. <laughs> yes. No, the exact same thing where instead the cop, because the cop has the exact same stance in The Incredibles and in this where yeah. leg spread, gun pointed, and he's panicking. Right. He's like shaking and you're not really sure what's gonna, like whether he's going to shoot him or not. Um, he's like, he looks really nervous. Yeah. What a great reference. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I watched this movie on Hulu. Joey, how did you watch it? I also watched it on Hulu, but to get the quotes, I actually had to buy it on Amazon. So what's the point, <laughs> what's the point anymore? <laughs> well, let's go ahead and do the synopsis for Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, go ahead. John McClane, the 90s favorite cowboy, is back, baby. After a bomb goes off in downtown New York City, a mysterious man calls the police station and claims it was his doing. The man, called Simon, has one unusual request. He wants famous New York cop John McClane to play a game. McClane is on suspension for being too big of an asshole for even the NYPD. He's sitting around drinking beer, playing the lottery, and not calling his wife, who is still in L.A., the inspector, complying with Simon's demands, brings McLean in, hands him a sandwich board, and drops him off in Harlem. The sandwich board, which contains a racial slur, attracts a lot of attention, including from a local shop owner named Zeus. Zeus steps in to protect McLean, putting himself in harm's way. The two of them head back to the police station to get patched up. This is where the plot thickens. Bombs are being located all over the city, and Simon starts leading McLean and Zeus around via payphone, dispensing weird riddles and sending them on citywide scavenger hunts. 
In one case, they are unable to get to the payphone soon enough, and Simon detonates a bomb on a subway. The FBI show up and tell McLean they know who Simon is. He is Hans Gruber's brother. You know, the bad guy from the first movie. What a twist. So it turns out this whole thing is about revenge. Simon then tells the police that he has planted a giant bomb in a New York City school. But which one is it? It could be one of a thousand. Then he sends McLean and Zeus on another scavenger hunt. Every public official in the city is tasked with searching for this bomb, which clears the way for Simon's real plan, which is to rob the Federal Reserve. What a twist! The subway explosion messed with the reserve's security measures, and Simon and his goons walk on in and start loading up $140 billion in gold bars into dump trucks. McLean and Zeus are suspicious of Simon's stated intentions and go looking for themselves. They catch the thieves and chase them to a boat in the Long Island Sound. On board the large cargo vessel, McLean and Zeus are overpowered and tied to the real bomb. What a twist! That's right, idiot. Simon would never blow up a school. He's a soldier, not a monster. He is really going to crash the economy by blowing up the gold and redistributing the wealth to the fishes. McLean and Zeus barely escape as the boat explodes and are picked up by the rest of the police, but it's not over yet. You see, McLean knows that Simon wouldn't just blow up the gold. No, he would have pretended to blow up the gold so that he could keep it all for himself. What a twist! <laughs> McLean and the NYPD track Simon and his goons to the Canadian border where they have an epic showdown in a helicopter. McLean shoots a power line and Simon dies in an epic explosion. McLean and Zeus commiserate over their crazy day and McLean finally calls his wife. The end. There you have it, folks. Die Hard with a vengeance complete with every twist. <laughs> Let's get started with our pros and our cons. Joey, what did you like about Die Hard with a vengeance? McLean is actually back. He feels like the John McLean from the first movie. Um, the action is subdued, but still cool. The story is wacky and fun. Simon is a pretty great villain. Um, they, they lost the journalism thing for the most part. Uh, although I think we'll talk about that more later. We will. Uh, but that was, it's not as big of a focus in this one, which I think was a, uh, a definitely an improvement. Um, it's the whole story is contained, easy to follow and exciting from beginning to end. Yeah. And I want to, I, well, I want to like stress that it's good that they lost the journalism thread. Not that commenting on journalism is bad, but Die Hard has never had anything to say, anything substantive to say about journalism. They just criticize journalism as being bad. So yes. I agree with that being in the in the pros. Um, and I also agree with you saying McLean is actually back. I thought we were going to see the increasing like uh, path towards becoming a super soldier. This felt like they brought him back to reality in a certain sense. Uh, for the most part, he was doing normal McLean things again, which I also enjoyed. This movie has great stunts. It has great use of the setting, New York City. It has a fantastic lead duo, and I feel like it's a creative departure from kind of what we've seen from the first two series, uh, first two movies in this series, uh, in a way that keeps the films uh, in this series from stagnating. It, it has a very unique feel compared to the first two, uh, in yeah, my opinion. I definitely agree. 
Now, let's go to the cons. What did you not like about Die Hard with a Vengeance? Even though Sam Jackson is featured prominently in this movie, there's not enough of him. He, he's, I don't feel like he's utilized to his full extent. Um, I'm not really sure what his purpose in the story is, honestly. Um, so we'll talk about that more later. Uh, McLean doesn't grow throughout the story. It, it's not like Die Hard 1 where he starts off as kind of like a like a a shitty husband and then he becomes like a little bit more self-aware and a little bit and realizes that you know maybe what he said was wrong and that he needs to come you know to terms with things um in this one he's he's much more stagnant um he's really kind of starting to become part of the scenery i think and does simon's plan actually make sense like if you think about it too much i think it starts to break your brain a little bit and the ending is underwhelming uh just to be charitable uh, what about you? What did you not like about it? I strongly agree with the ending being underwhelming. It felt like this movie petered out towards the end, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, also, I felt like the co-villains failed to fully establish mm. themselves. I felt like we got to know Simon, but it was really tough to keep up. I think the other guy's name was Rolf or I don't Targo remember. Targo and uh, Targo okay see and uh, Natalie or something and, and yeah and I'll I'll explain that a little bit more in detail a little bit later but now let's move into our overall section Joey take it away so we are back in the world of Die Hard and it feels so good I think in many ways this is a brilliant sequel to Die Hard 1 it keeps some of the same elements, but it raises the stakes without going over the top. It's quick and has lots of twists, and the action is fun and impactful. Yeah, I agree. This felt like a breath of fresh air for the Die Hard series. Skip the one building, one crisis motif. Leave Christmas out completely and mm. skip the one-man army thing. While John does accomplish a lot, I felt like they really made it less it was like he was more the reluctant hero again being forced to go do things as opposed to being the only answer possible for every single problem that the villains bring up um also yeah like another great idea for this movie bring john home to nyc where he's actually a cop <laughs> <laughs> and finally get a co-star worthy of teaming up with the likes of John McClane. I could understand pitching this movie as like, what if we just made a Die Hard where Samuel Jackson's in it too? Like, I was like, yeah, sign, sign me up. <laughs> Sounds great to me. Yeah, no, it, I, I completely agree with that. It's so, um, it's so cool seeing them take that kind sort of formula and then make it into something like bigger yeah um, yeah because it's not a complete departure from what die hard is a lot no. of the core elements still exist there but they make it feel a lot more new and fresh and they do a lot of stuff i like i like what you said about the one eight mine army stuff because in the first the second movie it's like no one will listen to him or he you know he doesn't have time to explain what's going on so he just goes out and does it in this one he is constantly trying to contact other people but the phone lines are being messed with by simon uh his phone gets destroyed he's isolated um you know and and he's not completely alone either he has zeus with him to kind of uh you know play up some of that um some of the the moments so that's uh it's really helpful to see him uh again become a normal person and to try and solve these crazy problems and it's because of his perseveredness and because of his unique like set of attributes that he is successful he's this movie sets up a john mcclain uh sized lock and he is the perfect size key to, ah. to solve this problem uh, okay i like that 
Um, with the so the return of John McTiernan really does make this movie feel like it's coming back to who, to where it started from. Everything takes place over the course of one day. It's almost entirely contained inside the city of New York of New York, uh, which feels claustrophobic but also is massive. Um, this lends itself to bigger set pieces, more elaborate stunts, and crazier scenarios. All of which McTiernan takes full advantage of. This is truly a New York City movie. You get taxi cabs, you got Central Park, you got Wall Street. You got the schools and the waterways, the subways. Come on, man. <laughs> it's a unique location and it's utilized really well. Yeah, like I, it blew me away the um the scene where they drive through Central Park. Oh my gosh, it's my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's so cool. And, and you know, it's just so much classic New York shit. And um as much as we've every movie takes place in New York City, this one felt like they really utilized the setting to the max. Yeah, I love that scene with Central Park. It's such a unique like chase scene, first of all, because he's not actually being chased. He's racing against the clock, and he has to drive through the park. So he's trying not to hit anybody, but he's going through like the, the he's going over the grass. He's going through the park, uh, like the, the 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 walkways. He's driving over the rocks. You know, speeding he's doing towards he civilians with reckless yes. abandon. <laughs> exactly. So like, uh, it, it's like a really unique. Um, action set piece but it was really tense and i was really like oh my gosh he's gonna hit somebody he's gonna run to a tree what's gonna happen here um so yeah i really liked that i thought that was really cool well and that's a great example of a time where zeus is kind of a nice uh companion for john mcclain because john mcclain you know, there are times where he's like whoa that was like crazy or whatever but for the most part he's just going for it and mm -hmm. zeus is reacting how the audience is reacting we're like what the hell is going on like this, <laughs> this is crazy, crazy man what, yeah. what is he doing <laughs> Yes. No, that that was cool. And, and seeing that whole thing play out where he's like, the quickest way is through the park. And you're like, oh, you mean the park drive? No, I don't mean through the park drive. I mean through the park itself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it just uh, it, it sets, itself, sets itself up so well. And I, I really like that scene a lot. Uh, so like that, the... The action is not as over the top as it is in Die Hard 2. You don't have planes exploding in midair or anything. Um, but this lets the story and the characters shine through, especially Jeremy Irons as Simon. He's cool, suave, and clever. He's also ruthless and conniving. Nothing is as, is as it seems. Even his partnerships uh, have secret plots behind them. He's really capture, he really captures your attention. And although he's not as charming as Hans Gruber, he's a compelling villain and with a plan to match. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's tough. I, I think we said this before, but Hans Gruber is an insanely tough act to follow. He was such a good villain. He's, I think he's a big reason why Die Hard establishes itself so well in the first movie. Uh, and I think Simon does a great job in this one, but his co-villains do not. Okay, so I'm guessing <laughs> the the woman was mute because she had that scar on her neck, right? Did That's she why she never talked. I didn't even notice the scar. She um, had well. What, how? Why else didn't she ever say stuff? I don't know. She was that was just part of her character is that she was mute. Well, because I, I did read something that said that the actress who played her was at first relieved that she didn't have any lines and then later on was like, I wish I had some lines. Well, yeah. Okay, she definitely has a very noticeable scar right at the base of her neck. And I'm yeah. pretty sure it's implied that there was an assassination attempt. She was believed to have been killed because they put a bomb between the sheets and she survived. So maybe it's mm. she was, this is battle damaged. Uh, what was her name? Brumhelga? Katya. Katya. Play, played by uh, uh, Sam Phillips. Sure. But... <laughs> Why not let this woman have a speaking part? None of that was very well established or had a point besides removing her ability to speak. 
I don't see why that needed to be included. It, like, I guess she's like a little bit more mysterious, but you can also have a woman who just doesn't speak that much, but still can right. speak. That's the thing is that she doesn't, she doesn't, she's not on screen so much that it's un, it's weird that she's not speaking. You know what I mean? She's just, she's there and she's like, you know, doing things, but it's not like there's this hole in the conversation where she would normally fill it with what she's going to say. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, she's just not talking in this moment. I felt like that for the majority of the film, yes, but at the end of the movie, it felt like we were building towards something that never happened mm. because it would have been interesting if she did have something to say at the end of the movie, but instead, no, she's just the slam piece for this guy to steal the other guy's GF, you know? Right. Like, I also didn't understand the betrayal of that other guy. Did they kill him just because she wants to sleep with this guy instead of uh, she wants to sleep with Simon instead of that guy? Like, uh, wh why did why were we supposed to care as, about that as the audience? I feel like Targo, the Katya's like husband or whoever, um, did, wasn't in on the actual plan, which was which was a double twist, right? Because Jeremy Irons said, "I'm gonna steal all this gold." And Targo, you're going to help me do it. And Targo says, sure, that sounds freaking great. And then um, he's like, uh, actually, the real plan was to blow up the gold, which Targo was not on board for. He was upset about that. But then the real, real plan was to actually steal the gold. So now he has one less person he has to split it with, maybe. Okay, and you have hundreds of other dudes who you still have to split it with? I, like, I don't understand yeah, why right. it was such well, a big I mean, deal he's to part kill of the Targo. bigger part. You know, he would get a bigger cut because he's part of the bigger plan. You know, he's one of the main guys. So he would get a bigger cut, right? I, I, that was not well established. Okay. This <laughs> Maybe Katya wanted to kill him anyway. And so she's like, here's her opportunity. Maybe, you know? but we don't know. She never says yeah. it. So yeah. it just feels like they're trying to, you know, stir up some drama between the villains. But I don't care if one of the villains gets a worse cut than the other villains because they all suck. They're all villains. I want them all <laughs> to lose. He loses worse, I guess. But in the end, they all lose. So it's equal. It just felt like they were trying to give us something that wasn't there at all. It's like, oh, yeah. look, one more twist for you and i'm not having it on this one um so like i honestly feel like she's becoming more of a good guy by shooting him because like aha you killed mm. one of the villains great job like <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to be a good person um but I, overall i felt like tatia and like lead villain number two uh did not matter at all and simon is really the only villain i care about yeah. but also i my i have to question how do they continue to find guys who are willing to join these nationless armies? That was <laughs> the, what happened in the in the. Well, the first one was more of like a heist, and it seemed like a, a more a smaller group of dudes. But yeah. Die Hard Two, they had a nationless army that was helping with what was going on at the airport, and then now we have another nationless army, separate nationless. And army. they keep getting bigger and bigger. I mean, like every time you see Simon, there's just more and more guys. It's not like he has he has Targo, who is like his second in command, I guess, but he's also like a co-conspirator. But there's not like a big henchmen you know normally you have like the number two who's like the big silent guy right. who uh who's like kills a bunch of cops and he's like really and then mclean has to do a like a fist fight with him and he barely gets out alive don't have that in here he's just got a a sea of of white german guys yes and it's who, just like he can call upon to to just show up in a shipping yard and and, and drink champagne yeah and for me it's like what is going on in the diehard universe in the world the earth the version of earth that diehard exists within where 
all these men sign up to die for these rogue militias. Yeah. It's pretty bizarre. And it's uh, gotta be the, you know, all of these elaborate plots by these crazy maniacal villains that have des destabilized countries all over the world. And now these people are, don't have any nation to return to. So now they're coming back. And the last stand against it is of course, America. Yeah. America is the only one stable enough to fend off and has the only cops crazy enough to fend off megalomaniacs uh, like uh, Jeremy Irons. Truthfully, the, the difference maker is that America has McLean. That's right. the thing that's stopping these rogue armies <laughs> whenever they touch American soil. Uh, but yeah, I guess from coast that, to coast. That's, I guess, what I wanted to point out. Like, it, it just, it is kind of bizarre how much help these villains end up having, but um, it is consistent, I guess, in the Die Hard universe. Yeah. So, as much as I feel like Simon is well established in this movie, I don't feel like our other characters really get that much of attention. Um, John McClane is still a bit of a deadbeat. So, whatever growth he accomplished in the last two movies is pretty much erased at the beginning of this movie. Nor does any real growth happen during this movie. I guess he decides to call Holly, which is not nothing, but it's <laughs> literally the same as Die Hard 1, and it's not even as good as it is in that movie. It's so... Yeah, it's so lazy. It, it's it's <laughs> I thought it was a bold choice to start him off at this low point, and I thought they were yeah. going to take McLean in a, a whole new direction. This is like punished McLean. This is, mm. I have nothing left to live for McLean. But really, he just started the movie that way, and they almost kind of reset him at the end. We don't know how the call goes, but yeah, there's yeah, nothing yeah, no. else. It's the exact same thing, it. but just worse. Um, I, I, I read something that said there was an alternate version to the ending of this movie in which McLean, Simon gets away and then McLean doggedly tracks him down after being blamed for all the gold being blown up or something like that. So he's like, he's off the forest and he's just kind of a vigilante now. And he goes and plays some sort of an elaborate game of Russian roulette using a rocket launcher with Simon. But people thought that this was too, um, like too much of a like vengeance plot of like, oh, he's like, he's not such a good guy anymore. He's like just out to get somebody, you know? Whereas in this, he stays on the, like the moral high ground always. Um, yeah, and that's kind of always how McLean has been, but it, it, like the the alternate ending to this movie would be that he descends to the let like to a more like personal vengeance level, which would which would kind of uh, support what you were saying, like taking him in a new direction, right? Right. Uh, he like he becomes more and more like jaded and more and more disillusioned with the police force and the effectiveness of the system and starts taking matters into his own hands. Um, but that's not what you see here. He still relies heavily on the police force and ultimately returns back to it just as he did before. Right, and he's defending capital for the owner class once again, which is like what cops always <laughs> do. Which is a classic do. cop thing. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I I'm it's interesting that you point out that there is an like alternate ending because this ending did feel kind of just thrown on at the end. I felt like they were setting up for a sequel, which I know that there are sequels. I've never seen them, so. I thought for sure that this movie was going to end with Simon and his goons getting away with the gold and gotcha. John being like, I guess I can lose, you know, like uh, mm. for this time the empire wins, but we're going to get like, we're going to return in the next movie and resolve the, like tie up all the loose ends from this one, which I think wouldn't be that hard to do because you could be like, 
America is in shambles. Our gold is gone, and now things and like only John McClane can go like save the American economy by getting the gold back. Uh, right, like that would be something he. I feel like the motivation is there where he could make that happen, and then now it becomes the opposite thriller where Simon and his goons are living large, and and like McClane is like, I will find you and I will kill you, you know, and he yeah like, yeah he gets he like sneaks in and and kills them uh, right. all. Right, so like he like they set up some sort of thing or like some sort of like tower or something right. and they're like they're in there and then he has to do the heist to get yes. it out oh man that'd be so cool right? that's <laughs> what i thought they're setting up so that's why it's so disappointing to see the way it actually ended where first off what happened to all the goons like i know that Okay, first off, they have the jump on the boat. They're like, ha we they didn't know we were coming. We've got the helicopter. We've got the high ground. And then all of a sudden, no, wait, Simon has the high ground. And now we're pathetic on the ground running away from him. Like, how did we let this happen to us? <laughs> and then, which felt weird. And then, of course, he gets the yippee ki whatever line and kills yeah. Simon. But what about all those troops we saw arming up? Does the Canadian army go to war with this boat? <laughs> What happened to that? <laughs> they had no explanation. They're like, yeah, they had so much. Like, like that the, was like, it, what were they gonna do with all that gold? Like, obviously, they can't just sell it to people, right? They have to fence it somehow um, to some, I guess, foreign government. I assume. Well, they're which, not gonna get the chance, right? Because John yeah. stopped them. So what? I'm just asking, how did they stop the rest of the goons? Or is it like episode yeah, yeah. one where the they destroy the Trade Federation ship and all the battle droids power down? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Is like if there was a plan in place that was so robust up to this point that it was guaranteed to be successful, right? Wouldn't the the end goal of like, okay, now we have all the gold. How do we turn this into money? Or how do we turn this into power? Like that has to be part of the plan too, right? So why isn't that already in place, like happening? And like whoever's second in command comes in and like uh, and you know fulfills that part of the plan. Right. But you're right. Like they just they just might as well not exist. They're there to to give him a toast and then they uh, they walk away basically. Well, um, the, that, that's like, it. The I think the last thing you see goons do is run in like a line to grab like fully automatic machine guns and that's the end right who deals with those guys are they just gonna be like oh you told me that simon's dead because i'm obviously not gonna be able to see his corpse but <laughs> he's just burned up in a helicopter crash but okay i guess i'm just gonna return to whatever country i don't belong to because i work for a ro- a nationless army right there's just or is no the, resolution is the, the nypd gonna bring in their tanks and like all right finally we get to go to war with canada <laughs> <laughs> right it's it just listen it's not that there isn't you can't connect some sort of dots and try to come up with your own ending they don't give you any of that which is why this ending feels so hollow yeah 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 no definitely especially considering how intricate everything else is you know even McLean and zeus ending up on the boat that feels like a satisfying conclusion to that it's like oh they got the better of them now they're tied to the giant bomb what are they gonna do and then they like barely get out alive right but like uh you know you gotta have simon like do some sort of tricky thing you know like he's in a hall of mirrors or something like you know he's like oh i'm a i'm a i'm, I'm a tricky guy I got all these plans in place and then i'm gonna get you McLean. um like all of that like some sort of cat and mouse like thing at the, at the end there would be really exciting as opposed to like shoot the power line and then he blows up. Right. So. It, it really felt like it was shoehorned in. It was just, we have to finish this movie somehow and we're not going to make the sequel about this conflict. So we yeah. have to tie it up. Yeah. Tie it up in five minutes. Here we go. Yeah, really. So 
so uh, going back to McLean himself, um, I, I feel like he's he's again he's not developed very well in this movie. Um, like, and I think it's really a shame because he is back home. Why why is he the way that he is? Why is he such? Why is he throw himself so heavily into this job, but he doesn't really seem to take it seriously? Like, is that an ironic distance, or is he burnt out? Um, maybe this is in the subtext, uh, but he's way more of an audience surrogate in this movie than Die Hard 1. Um, you know, he's finally back home, but New York City doesn't really affect him as a person. It's just as a utility. Like, Bruce Willis really sells the New York cop with his quick wits and intimate knowledge of the city, but he's not emotionally affected by the destruction of it. He just sort of lives here, you know? That's a good point. Like, it would have been... I don't know. It would have been interesting if he woke like it's, it was sobering for him to be like they they blew up. Uh, what was it like Dinwit Twitties or whatever the <laughs> name of the, the uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, I have it here somewhere. Bonwit Teller. Yes, <laughs> that's just as nonsense as whatever I said. Uh, but you know, he could. I, I agree. He should have had some sort of like down home New York. He's talked about how he knew how to get around New York really well. Yeah. So that maybe that that's part of it. But at the same time, but that's time, just utility. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's not like he's like, oh, my favorite hot dog stand here is like it got blown up, or like, oh no, like uh, how, like what's gonna happen to my family? Like my my cousins who live down the street from me or whatever. Like you know, I'm so worried about whatever. Um, oh like, yeah. I feel, I feel I get- like. I feel like Zeus is like way more in the city for some reason, mm-hmm. right? He first of all, he's like, I used to be a taxi driver. His kids go to a school there. You know, he he's uh he's like he's pretty intimately familiar with how the layout of the city works as well. And going to Wall Street and you know being rude to guys on Wall Street and stuff. Going to payphones, talking to the cops, all that stuff is like very much like a black New York City person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's like a. I don't know. He feels like way more part of the city, whereas McLean feels like he's almost kind of dropped in. Yeah, definitely. It would have been cool to have some sort of uh, like Spider-Man type thing where the people of New York team up with McLean. Where sure, like, you know, like oh, guy. we know, we know him. He's yeah. you know, he saved that that building or he saved that like that crisis. Or yeah. whatever. he's that famous cop, whatever. Right. Like yeah, or, exactly. Or like McLean, like I don't know, crashes through a window and someone's like, "You look like shit, McLean." He's like, "This is just <laughs> Tuesday," you know, kind of thing. Where <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he knows him. he knows everybody in the city somehow. Right. It, it, you know, he's he's part of it. He's he's a member of it. But you don't really get that. You know, mm-hmm. he's just like i live here i know where things are um yeah, yeah which isn't as useful um i do really like uh bruce willis as mclean though i think he does a really good job uh it's really Im- easy to imagine him in that role and in other movies it's going to be hard for me not to see him as john mclean because he's so he's so perfect in this um he really he really does kind of disappear into this action man uh stereotype which yeah. i think is uh a powerful thing to do. Right. As much as I love to always refer to him as Corbin Dallas, I <laughs> am starting to see him how I think a lot of people see him as this guy is John McClane. Exactly. Yeah. So then there's Zeus. So Samuel Jackson is like un- unarguably one of the greatest actors of our time. Certainly one of the most prominent black actors of the last 20 years. And yet he is given nothing here i guess he's supposed to be racist against white people but he learns to get along with this crazy white cop i honestly don't even know how to entangle that um zoo uh, i think you have a, a something well, to note about that but yeah well okay this movie brings up race through right. zeus uh and it's i mean he's obviously a very socially conscious character um and he and mclean clash over some 
you know, things that constitute microaggressions. But that's about it. I mean, maybe you have to do this. You have to point out racial issues when you have a black man from Harlem teaming up with a New York City cop. But they don't necessarily add anything to the conversation when it comes to race in America. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, when Zeus says... Uh, he says, I, he saved McLean, right, um, at the beginning. And he says he did this to protect his neighborhood from police retaliation. And that McLean has nothing to say about that. You know what I mean? Like, right. like oh, yeah, I guess that would have happened. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, not, like, like, that's a perfect example of his relationship with the cops in the city. And for him to work with one like so closely would make that interesting because he sees the city in a completely different way than McLean does. But again, you don't really see how McLean sees the city. And so you never get that comparison between how, how they relate. Right. Right. And here's the thing. I think it's okay that Die Hard with a Vengeance doesn't attempt to solve racism, okay? That's not what we have to have from this movie. But when you hang a sign that says the N-word on John McClane, I kind of expect you to have something to say on the issue of race. And this movie just doesn't have it. I mean, yeah, I, not really. It, it it sort of glosses over it in a way. And it, I feel like it's trying to say something, but I, I really don't know what it's trying to get to. Maybe if I spend a lot of time trying to untangle it, I feel like I would get somewhere, but I don't, I actually feel like I don't want to do that because it might ruin this whole movie for me. (laughs) Yeah. I just feel like it's, it's not clear if they are. And mainly what I'm hearing is they're like, Hey, race is an issue. And then that's it. Yeah. Which, okay. Thank you. Racism. Right. Have you considered? Yes. That racism (laughs) exists. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, he has a couple of character moments that I I like, like where he saves McLean at the beginning. I think that was really cool. Um, when he says I'm an electrician, and then he like, uh, and then he like uh, shoves his knife into the car to start it, whatever. Oh. Um, that that was kind of a cool moment. Uh, that but, was like, badass. No, no, he says, uh, you know how to hotwire this car, and he's like, of course I do, but it would take too damn long. And then he just <laughs> starts it. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, but he says, like, I'm an electrician. But then later on, he says something else that makes me think that this is sarcastic. But he's like, he runs an electronics store. So I think he really is electrician, an electrician. But um, I don't know. Like, uh, the, that's kind of a, that's a bit of a character development moment for Zeus. You get a little bit more about him and his backstory and his utility in the story. Uh, but it's not really come up, doesn't really come back up. And then there's that one moment where Zeus tries to insert himself, where he's trying to jump on Simon's big old boat. Uh, but they end up taking the cable instead. Uh, again, like uh, it's not—it's not really something though. It's like I'm gonna be the guy here, but then he's—he doesn't because they just come up with a, a different way. His, his Zeus's autonomy, his agency, his character never really shine through. He's mostly just there to react to McLean and to be another body so they can be in two different places, which is a shame because even in these small moments I just mentioned, Zeus has a lot of character. He's really interesting. And his view of the city, like I mentioned, would be vastly different than McLean's. But that is never discussed. They don't relate to each other. They don't teach each other anything. And they sort of just grow to respect each other. But it's the same kind of one-sided respect that McLean always gets because he's super cop. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
like at the end of the the second movie, right? Uh, that there's that cop who doesn't like him. By the end, he's like, "I respect you, right? Jane. I'm gonna write off your your parking ticket because you saved literally thousands of lives." Right. Like, how could I not respect you after this? But I, the other thing that's kind of a problem with Zeus is his involvement in the movie at all. Yeah. His involvement in the game is the game that's going on is tenuous at best you see this plan that simon has put together so meticulously i don't understand why he would want to include this random guy so heavily he's and he specifically doesn't kill zeus on multiple occasions so why not just leave him out of it i mean i know the reason why he doesn't leave him out of it is because we need samuel l jackson to (laughs) co-star in this film but i would have liked there to have been a better reason something where it's like John, like if you really love this city, then you'll like like save this person from like this real New Yorker or something that mm. makes it make more sense than just you pissed me off on the phone, so now you're I hate you as much as I hate McLean. <laughs> <laughs> Who killed my brother. Right. <laughs> That is how I feel when people call me. Uh, the the scammers call me. He's like, I hate you more than I hate anyone in my life. I'm gonna set, I'm gonna set up an elaborate scavenger hunt, and you're gonna have to go on it. Right. Like, um, okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. Like it just again. I'm glad they had uh, Samuel Jackson. I, yeah. In yeah. This movie, no. He but... fits into this world perfectly. He's like he's a New York citizen, and I like having him in the movie. I like seeing him in here. I like those little moments he's in there. But he's just sort of there. You know what I mean? He's not a um, uh, he doesn't really have any utility. John McClane's like, oh, we have to go here, and Zeus is like, okay, I guess we gotta go there. And then they uh, they end up there, and they're like, how do we solve this puzzle? And they're like, um, I don't know. And then they kind of like they fill up some jugs of water, and they argue, and oh then my they gosh. like, and then that's it. Like, but I don't know. I guess they're working together, but it's there's nothing about like Zeus as a character that aids them in the story. It's not like oh, you know. Uh, McLean, you wouldn't know this, but actually, if you do this, like this is going to help, uh, like the situation. Oh, McLean, like, um, you I, know, well, okay, one counter. Turns out that. The, the Federal Reserve is right here for some reason. I know that because I have a friend who works on Wall Street. I don't know. That's kind well, of contrived. The, the but, one you know. he knew was the uh, what has four legs and is always ready to travel, and he's like, right. that's an elephant, like joke. Okay, like obviously he spends time with his he spends time with his nephews. Right. Well, but... he he helps solve all the riddles, right? But like, mm-hmm. that's okay, not yeah. a like why like that's not a Zeus thing necessarily. That's just mm-hmm. like a smart guy thing. You know what I mean? He yeah, and he really does help. He even knew the first one. John would have blown it on the first riddle if it wasn't for Zeus. So yeah. Yeah, but like, it's not even clear if that's like it's not clear at that moment what's even happening. You know, is the bomb that Simon is threatening even real, or is he, um, or is he just messing with them? You know, right? Yeah. In retrospect, probably none of it was real. Like he wasn't going to kill John at that point. The whole point was to get John to eventually trigger the uh, police going everywhere so that they could yep. clear the way. In fact, the explosion in the train station was going to happen regardless also that's so, right that's, yeah, what, that's was, what yeah that's what mclean says like there, it, it's impossible it's physically impossible for us to get here in time he, this that bomb was going off no matter what right um and that was just to prove that he was going to blow up you know, he was willing to blow stuff up at what seems to be random but really that that bomb was the whole plan all along yeah and that was enough to trick to say i'm serious 
Therefore, I may have also put a bomb in a school, which gives credibility to that claim. Yeah, so it, it makes sense from that perspective. But like, uh, like from when you go look back on it, like what did Zeus really like contribute to this team up between these two guys? It's not he's not really pulling his weight. Not really. Right. I think he, yeah, like you said, mainly he contributed through reacting to John. Um, but he's yeah, his his unique skills as a person don't really come into effect that much. Yeah. So I mean, we're close, right? Like, I think having John McClane team up with another person, especially Samuel Jackson, is a great idea. But you have to then actually, the reason why that's cool is because then you have two characters. <laughs> <laughs> And I like this idea of trying to make it more New York, like having him be his link to New York City. But again, yeah. that's not really emphasized at all. Okay, so let's talk about the plan. So the plan is insane. <laughs> it's so complicated <laughs> and it has so many different parts. I literally can't hold all of it in my head at once. Because of movie magic, everything happens perfectly. Um, but you can imagine how any piece of this could go wrong. Although the action is put on a lower burner in favor of exposition, does the movie really benefit from this? It kept me engaged at the cost of better character moments. I felt like McLean and Zeus running around, getting little pieces of the thing, having little episodic adventures that led to a big finale. But I, I feel like I was missing those intimate moments where there are two characters trying to figure each other out or trying to outwit each other. One of my favorite moments in all three of these movies so far is when Hans Gruber pretends to be a hostage in order to pull a fast one on McLean. It's so tense, but it's also really simple. It, and it feels unplanned. It feels like both men are flying by the seat of their pants. I mean, what's going to happen? I think that um, the, that first movie really benefits from the simplicity of the plot, right? There's this twist, sort of, where they where Hans is like, we're not terrorists, we're actually robbing the bank, right? But that happens very close to the beginning and then it all it does is establish that hans gruber is a lot smarter than he first appears to be otherwise the plan is pretty straightforward and the rest of the movie is mclean trying to thwart it and them trying to thwart his thwarting so in this one it's just constantly like oh now this is happening simon's in control for you know 95 percent of the movie uh, whereas i feel like a better movie is having is pitting is setting up the situation for you to understand it and then having our characters try to find a clever way around it, you know? Yeah. And McLean like saying, okay, now we don't have to, we don't have to go to Yankee stadium is sort of that, but not really, you know, it, I feel like there's a lot more interesting moments you could have if you create a situation that feels unplanned. Obviously it's a movie. Everything's planned, but if right. you, um, if you set up a situation where like, Oh, I didn't ex like Simon didn't expect McLean to do this. Right. It's uh, it becomes way more interesting. Uh, McLean surviving for as long as he did was sort of part of the plan. He's just he's no longer an unexpected element, but something they account for and just underestimate, yeah. which I think is a, uh, a an important distinction for creating a movie that is really character driven. Yeah, and I, I feel like while I was watching it and the, the plan itself was still unfolding, it felt really cool because it is like, oh, that wasn't actually what was going on. This is what was actually going on. But when you get to the very end of the movie and still you're getting those twists and I'm like, okay, so nothing that I knew was right and <laughs> the, the bad guy is still in control up until the end of the movie okay like it, it feels like john has been led around this whole time and really wasn't accomplishing much uh throughout the entire film so like for instance evacuating the kids from the school but then finding out the bomb was fake it's like oh oh 
Like, <laughs> right. You know, like I don't care. This was really tense when I thought maybe kids were going to die, but I, yeah, I, I thought out, Charlie was putting his life on the line. And yeah. It turns out he's not, you know? And like, yeah, I don't want the school to blow up. I don't want the kids to die. Obviously I want them to all survive. And, but like, it's like, oh, you're 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 creating the moment for a twist by ruining the tension that was in there before. You know what I mean? Because you watch it a second time, you're like, well, this is all theater yeah. in a way. You know, like this is all just, uh, well, oh, the cops look so stupid right now, even though like they're reacting in probably the best way they can. Uh, yeah. Right. And so it's like in the moment that's nice, but in retrospect, it's a little bit hollow. Right. It takes it. It sets up all this stuff just for it to kind of pull the rug out from under itself. Which is fine if you have a really smashing ending, but yes. like we said, that's kind of missing. It's as twist well. for twist's sake. It's a twist to say, "Oh, like you, you, the audience couldn't possibly follow this because we made it <laughs> unbelievably convoluted." <laughs> okay, so, yeah. I got one more thing to talk about. Um, unless you got one other thing. Anything nope. else you want to? Okay. Which is uh, uh, the action in this movie. I actually, I really like the action in this movie. It's mostly gunfights. There's not a lot of uh, hand-to-hand combat. There's very brief moments of it. Uh, There's one part where Targo is tossing McLean around, which is kind of funny. But um, (laughs) even in that moment, like McLean uh, isn't really like doing a lot of karate or anything. He's not fighting on the edge of a plane or, you know, close hand-to-hand stuff, which I think is a positive change for this series. Um, I think the gunfights in this are pretty exciting, even though they've been boring in the past. Um, and I think they serve a pretty good purpose. I think the, uh, I think when you think about McClane as a character, he is, ex- he's extremely practical, practical. He's like very, very practical. And if you are that kind of person and you are a pretty good shot with the gun, then it makes sense as a character to always reach for the gun for, you know, all of your problems, which I think he does in this movie, which is, I think, a good change and makes him um, less of a super cop, too. Yeah, and it it didn't feel like this movie relied on gunfights as much as, for instance, Die Hard 2, where yeah. they're like, okay, we have to go do this thing. Oh, no, but there's 17 guys there. You have to kill all, all have, of them by yourself. Yeah, they all have guns. And yeah. John McClane's rolling around on the floor, right. even though all the, the other guys that rolled around the floor got shot. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, this movie is more John versus information, which is a little bit more interesting. And yep. when they have gunfights, it, like you said, it's like a lot more economical. Guys die quickly. It's more of a quick reaction thing. Like, for instance, the guy who's like, don't shoot. And then John shoots him. He's like, what was that? And then, <laughs> the, like, I don't know. It's, it's a lot, it feels a lot more realistic. Same, like, I really enjoyed the scene in the elevator yes. where John realizes, like, it was a great uh, setup and payoff with recognizing the badge number. And then the way that John does it, where he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I got the tickets right here. And then he starts shooting the guys. Yeah. That's all good stuff. That's the kind of action that you can believe in where it's not that John is a better shot necessarily or that he just badasses his way through killing hordes of guards. He outsmarted them. He had a, he decided to kill them faster than they decided to kill him. And yeah, he got the jump on him and right. uh, in a smart way. He realized what he realized the situation, assessed it and then reacted appropriately. And he got lucky, but that's that's fine. I, I want him I want it to feel like he got lucky more so than it's like, oh, there's no way he could have lost this, you know, right. because that makes it more tense because it's like, oh, man, he almost died there. But overall, I feel like the action uh, of this one relies a little bit more on the stunts than it does on the actual violence. And, and yeah. I'm totally on board for that. Absolutely. OK, 
Are you ready to move to our cool Easter eggs? Yes, and I have the first cool Easter egg. Uh, and I really enjoyed, like I said, I really enjoyed the duo of Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson for this movie. And apparently, Bruce Willis suggested Samuel L. Jackson uh, for this movie. And wow. Sam Jackson said that he had watched the original Die Hard a bunch of times, and he was a huge fan. So that's kind that's of awesome. a cool team up. That's very cool. Um, so that's... so. We mentioned this a couple times. Uh, John McClane is wearing a sandwich board uh, with a racial slur on it, uh, and uh, he's in the middle of New York City. Um, so how did how did they shoot this? Is the question. Um, they so I, so I read a couple different things. There's a bunch of different conflicting stories, but I think the one on Amazon, which I feel like I believe a little bit more, said that it was actually blank, that there wasn't anything on it, and they added the words in pre uh, post production, and actually. Uh, in a couple of like the te television versions and like uh, you know ones that are censored, it the the sign says "I hate everybody" or even "I hate people," which is mm, <laughs> so offensive. Funny. Yeah. I know. Just Definitely thinking about like a bunch that... of like a gang of guys like sees a guy with a a, a sign that says "I hate people." <laughs> Whoa! Hey, man, we're people. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> my mom is a person. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. No, especially because that definitely would be like an ironic graphic tee, you know, where it's like I, I hate ha people. I hate people, and I oh, love yeah. wine. Or something. I feel like I've definitely seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so next one is interestingly enough. Uh, this was the highest grossing movie worldwide in 1995. Wow. Uh, grossing 366 million 101,666 dollars which edged out Toy Story, GoldenEye and Pocahontas, three other wow. big pictures that came out in Those 1995. Those are huge. So, uh yeah, I mean, well done for Die Hard. Yeah. The money making machine is what it is. Yes. Means. They went they went straight to the, the Federal Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, most of this was actually filmed in New York City, although some of it wasn't in the places that they claimed it was. Like the places, like the one in Harlem, for example, was actually a few blocks away from where they said it was. But it was mostly filmed in New York City, which is pretty cool. Um, the the some of the parts were actually filmed near Charleston, South Carolina, um, as well, which is uh, not too far from where we are. So yeah. that was, that's that's an interesting little bit. Um, the chase scenes in the tunnel where he's driving the um, the dump the dump truck was actually filmed in a New York City water tunnel number three, an unfinished uh, aqueduct connecting the city to the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. So those re were real tunnels that were apparently worked on at some point, although not anymore, um, that they used to film the movie, which is awesome. Hmm. Uh, so another one. So during a press conference to promote this film's release, Bruce Willis preemptively told reporters that he would not discuss the April 1995 Oklahoma City bombing in any way because he did not want to trivialize the real-world tragedy by comparing it in any way to a fictional movie, which I think is obviously a good thing to do. Um, but it's also interesting to just look at this movie in the context of real terrorism in mm -hmm. New York this movie coming out six years before 9-11, it's almost, I don't know if ghoulish is the right word, but it's its kind of haunting to see just a casual shot of the Twin Towers just to tell you where Zeus is at when he's driving that taxi. Yeah, yeah. I know. It, uh, I mean, that's the thing. I think this movie, I mean, the movie does a lot to show iconic New York stuff. And so uh, doing that is, um, again, just, just uh, playing into that. But... Um, 
they didn't realize the significance that would have later on. Right. Uh, it's always it's always weird seeing this t- the towers in uh in movies and stuff. Well, and, and seeing the explosion of b- bin wet twellers uh, tw- tw- at the beginning of the movie, um, it doesn't. Uh, I wonder what it was like to be in an audience in 1995 and see New York exploding versus how it feels to see that now. Because that I felt like that was a really shocking beginning to this movie. I thought oh, that, yeah. we haven't mentioned like the intro, I guess, to the movie. But I, I really it pulled me in immediately with all these shots of New York. You're like a oh, classic New York. What this movie could literally be a rom com at this point because anything like it, this is sort of generic introduction, and then boom, real terrorism in New York that pulled me in. And, oh yeah, uh, no. It yeah. starts off with a bang. It's it's exciting all the way through. It almost immediately you get that intro quote that we played, uh, where Simon explains basically the whole motif of the movie, which is that there's going to be uh, a bunch of games that McLean has to play, and you have to figure out what's behind them. So, right. Uh, that's uh, yeah. It brings you in immediately. It starts off uh, really strong, and the whole way through, I mean, there's hardly ever a break. Even at the end of the movie, they're sitting there on the curb, and then he calls his wife, and the movie ends basically. Right. Like there's not even an epilogue. But just to pull it back to this one uh, Easter egg, like it, it that you do have to confront real life events that happen like this uh, when you put them in a movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So this was um, adapted. This movie. This was adapted from a screenplay called Simon Says, which was uh, kind of in the works for a while, and it was also considered for a Lethal Weapon sequel. Which, as I was watching this, was like this does kind of have Lethal Weapon vibes. Like you got. The black cop, well, he's not hes not a cop, obviously, but you got the black guy and the white cop, and the white cop's a crazy person. Um, that's like, you know, that's kind of Lethal Weapon in a way. Um, all you need is Samuel Jackson saying he's too old for this shit, and then uh, you, you basically got it. <laughs> well, it, yeah, and apparently in the DVD commentary, uh, Jonathan Hengsley, I think I'm saying that correctly, uh, says that the first hour of this film is his original script for simon says uh, almost word for word and he just changed the characters which that is what it felt like it didn't feel like a classic diehard movie in those moments as much as later on and especially the ending uh it felt like this is a completely new direction for diehard uh and i think that's because of the script yeah i mean it is it's entertaining trying to figure out what's going on you're like why is he making him do all these things what like what is going on with this all these puzzles, um, yeah. I mean, it's like a it's like a twisted, you know, like villain type thing. I think I think it makes for a good idea for like a movie. Okay, so um, I know you said that they dropped the Christmas in this movie, but did they? Did they actually did they? drop the Christmas Uh-oh. in this movie? There's a, okay, so there's actually a bunch of Christmas references in this movie. Um, and I have the quotes for him. I just don't have them in front of me right now. But there's uh, Charlie will, says, uh, what does he say? He says, um, there's a whole bunch of uh, 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 four booby traps. Um, oh, oh, I'm getting I it because I remember specifically when he's down in the he's Dang down it. in the tunnels. He's approaching those guys in the truck, and he's like, "Hey, you, uh, I, you seen a fat guy come through here? Are they tiny reindeer?" You know, he's, he's yeah, referencing yeah, yeah. Santa. Okay, I see. So Charlie says, six booby traps, four dead ends, and a partridge in a, in a pear tree. And then, uh, yeah, he, he, he's pretending to be a, uh, uh, 
like a maintenance worker and he comes up and he says, Hey, you guys see these, uh, eight, eight tiny reindeer and a man in a, in a suit. And then he shoots the guy. He's like, yeah, it was crazy. It's a jolly old fat guy in a red suit. I'm surprised you didn't see him. <laughs> and then of course, uh, one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is when he, he uh, talks to the little kid who's stealing Butterfingers. And the kid says, look around, man. All the cops are into something. It's Christmas. You can steal City Hall. And then, like, the camera pans around John McClane as he realizes, like, oh, man, this is way bigger than I thought it was yes. going to be. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a number of Christmas references. Fair uh, enough. In this You're, movie. Yeah. I think Maybe even more than the other Christmas references in the other movies. I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> Die Hard 2 definitely takes the foot off the gas on the Christmas references, but I think this one goes even further where now it's just the pinky toe leaning on sure. the pedal. It's uh, uh, referencing yeah, it's, Christmas. I mean, it's all in the dialogue, so you don't see any Christmas uh, uh, imagery. Um, quotes I do have, though. So this is uh, this movie references has the 2016 election uh, with mentioning both candidates of the 2016 presidential uh, runoff. Here, let me, uh, let me play that clip for you. And I'm going to marry Donald Trump. And then also, um, they get cut off in the car. Oh, oh, you think you're a lady, Hillary Clinton? <laughs> so, this actually happens pretty close together in the movie, too. So, uh, uh, is Die Hard with a Vengeance predicting the future? Of course it is. Uh, yes. that's, the only, that's the only conclusion I can come with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Is right there. This movie also references uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, it's pretty. It's kind of an obscure thing, but John McClane. This is from uh, Amazon, by the way. John McClane says that after the police force uh, suspended him, he spent his time smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. This is a lyric from the Slatter Brothers, Fla uh, "Flowers on the Wall," which uh, Butch sings along uh, along to after ki killing Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction. Um, so, kind of a. Uh, a uh, tangential thing where the both of these characters are mentioning the same um, piece of like uh, of media. So I think you can say Die Hard is part of the Quentin Tarantino universe now. So uh, I think that's all, going a bit far. But all this of is, them are uh, connected. <laughs> this is definitely a uh, cinephile's uh, Easter egg. Sure. You really yeah, have to yeah, connect yeah. the dots on this one. Well, speaking of cinephile's Easter eggs, uh, there is a Wilhelm scream in this movie. Did you catch it? No. Let me play it for you. Are you aiming for these people? No. Maybe that mine. Did you hear it? I didn't. It's 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 only half of a Wilson screen. It's not a whole thing. Let me play a shorter version. Are you aiming for these people? No. Maybe that mine. It's right after he says no. Here, yeah, I have yeah, it. yeah. I have it uh, I have it again. Hold on. I have it like a, a little bit. I've it pitched a little bit. Oh! You hear it? Wow, that is very <laughs> subtle. Did you catch that? No, I found it on Amazon too. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm not that good. <laughs> it almost sounds like he's like the swerve or something, but it's so distinct. Like the it's it, yeah. it's cut off halfway, but like it's definitely it's definitely there. Nice. Uh, so there you go. Okay, well, I think we're ready to move on to our quotable moments. And these first three quotes that I want to go over all have to do with classic diehard stuff and how, they're, how it's being handled in this uh, movie. If you go back to our previous episodes, you'll notice that we touch on these same uh, topics in the first two diehard movies. So um, we'll get started with this one. Give me the commissioner. 
He's doing a press conference. He's supposed to be here in half an hour. All right, Ricky, get every senior officer on the site. Get him here right away. You're not going to give me any jurisdictional nonsense on this. I got two kids in a school on 64th Street. What can I do to help you? How many men have you got? 75. But if I push the panic button, I can get 500 from Washington. When? 2.33 o'clock. Between now and then? We're going to have to do this all by ourselves. Let's go. So in the first two Die Hard movies, we had this kind of running theme of bureaucratic nonsense getting in the way of progress where we'd have the you know local cops and then we'd have somebody from the county show up and then we'd have the FBI show up and each uh degree of abstraction away from the original conflict we get the less competent the people are with the Mm -hmm. fbi truly get like mucking things up this movie really goes away from that and they're first off they let the cops be competent even if what they do ends up being non-consequential but also they let them work together instead of big leaguing each other where the fbi is like we don't want to hear what you know local cops we're the fbi we've got this so i thought that was interesting it's definitely going away from what Die Hard one and Die Hard two had to say about that kind of level of bureaucracy yeah, the FBI doesn't get quite as bad of a rap because they're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I, we're involved in this too. We're, we're people too. Um, although they do seem kind, still kind of incompetent. And like, like uh, Walsh, not Walsh, but uh, the the inspector says at this moment, he says, we have to do this ourselves. You know, it's a, uh, it's a little bit of a wider net, I guess, because it's not just one guy. But they're still like, we're on our own here. Like we have to do this. Um, uh, we can't rely on the federal government to uh, help us. Sure, and I, I guess, but the federal government was willing to help. It was just a time constraint that kind right. of restricted their access. That's true. That's that is very different. So anyway, so that's that's just bureaucratic nonsense. Now let's move on to this next one. Folks, what's going on? Why did everybody tear out of here? Come on, Pamela, look at your watch. It's coming up on shift change. The bean counters are worried about overtime, so we sent everybody back to the precinct to punch out. The next shift is going to be here in a minute. You are so full of shit, Walsh. Thank you. Okay, so (laughs) Die Hard up until this point was very heavy on the commentary on journalism, commentary on the news media, basically saying it's all complete garbage, journalists are bad people, and they make the situation worse. This movie, just like with the bureaucratic nonsense, kind of just really lifts off of that idea and and stops commenting altogether. This is as much as we get about the media, and I guess what they're saying is there exists a relationship between law enforcement and journalists where (laughs) the journalists have to ask the questions to keep them accountable, but they kind of understand that the cops are going to bullshit them. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it is a little more complicated. And it, uh, this scene is really kind of glossed over, though, uh, because immediately right after this is when um, uh, Jeremy Irons shows up with his dump trucks, and then the real plan is revealed. So it, you really don't get to spend a lot of time thinking about what the nature of this relationship is. Um, the and only it's never other, revisited either. Yeah, they don't, the they don't o- bring it back. The only other journalist-ish thing that they talk about is um, when Jeremy Irons calls the radio station and says, oh, there's a bomb in the school, or my, my, my cousin's a cop, I know that there's a, there's a bomb in the school or something. Um, and it creates a panic, and it, it makes everything a lot harder for the cops to do. Um, but that's not really, it's not really the same thing as, as they show in the other movies, because um, it's, 
he's really just kind of using the radio as a tool more so than it's like, oh, the DJ is like kind of a scumbag and he's going to take this story and run with it and make it right. into a whole thing, you know? Well, it's just like the DJ didn't stop him. And I'm exactly. sure they have some sort of protocol for that on the radio the, to stop yeah, crazy so. <laughs> people from broadcasting nonsense. Right. So, like, uh, you know, the DJ's not a character. He's just a, a man in a room, you know? Right. So it's not a uh, it's not like the other ones where um, there's the, one of the characters is a journalist and he's a bad person. Right. So, again, it's like this classic line of commentary that is featured in the first two very prominently almost entirely evaporates in the third one. Um, all right, let's keep moving. They're headed north in dump trucks. Have you been drinking, McLean? Hello, not since this morning. Listen, there's a line of dump trucks northbound on the FDR at about 70. You gotta close the bridges and get some helicopters over there right away. I couldn't close a hot dog stand right now. I'm spread all over hell. What about this damn bomb? Right now, the 21st president was. It's got something to do with it. John, John, the 21st what? Walter! Shh! God damn cellular fucking phones! So... <laughs> Here's another one we brought up, uh, I think mostly in Die Hard 2, uh, but John McClane versus technology. And you see, (laughs) despite how prominent they were in Die Hard 2, this movie is completely faxless. Uh, It's surprising. That's right. they Not do, a single fax machine is explained in this movie. <laughs> right. Despite, yeah, the fax is getting top billing in, in Die Hard 2. But this is another example of John versus technology. Uh, this feels a lot more of like him just recognizing what year it is and saying, yes, cell phones do exist within 1995. And Honey, it's the 90s, remember? Microchips, microwaves, faxes, air phones. <laughs> Okay, well, as far as I'm concerned, progress peak with frozen pizza. Yeah, wake up and smell the 90s, McLean. But again, this feels like less of a thing. I almost had to reach to even bring this in as like a uh, thread because it's just, it's very, if you didn't have the commentary on John versus technology in the previous film, this would just be an innocuous. Yeah, it's just one off thing where he's just frustrated with his phone, which everybody does. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any other real scenes where he's he's uh, frustrated with technology. Otherwise, he's always he's on the payphone all the time. He's on the phone uh, with the, the inspector and other people trying to use the radios and stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, it's really not there. I think I, that you it is important that you bring up how much he uses the payphone because that does date this movie where it's so heavily used uh, that pay phones are just something people are using i mean now that's not a thing really i can't remember the last time i've used a pay phone i don't know if i've ever used a pay phone i don't know if i have either (laughs) what would a kid i mean i've touched pay phones like while i'm like out in public as a kid like let me press the buttons on it i don't think i actually used it for anything anyways um so another thing that is from other diehard movies is the uh john's working class friend of the day yes and we get that in jerry the truck driver in this one and um again it seems like it's another diehard thing that they kind of went softer on maybe that's the wrong way to say it but not as important in this one jerry doesn't give him a ride at the end of the movie which the other two working class friend of the days do um but he does get to be a little bit more respected than you might expect from 
what he does for a day job. So still included in that role, uh, which is quintessential diehard. Yeah, no, he was great. I liked hearing him explain. He knew all about the tunnels. He knew the whole history of the project that he was working on. He also knew who the 21st president was when nobody else in the in the in the city knew right <laughs> um which was hilarious so um yeah no he was great i liked having him in there i liked him a lot more than i liked uh what's his name from the second movie um oh uh, uh the janitor or, or whoever yeah, it was spunky spanky something like that whatever <laughs> yes. his name was i remember argyle was from the first argyle one. was cool yeah but um yeah so it was uh, you know so that's a classic diehard thing and then lastly we have John saying his catchphrase, yippee ki Yippee-ki-yay. Um, and this, to me, felt shoehorned. And maybe that's just because the entire thing felt shoehorned at the end. Uh, that, that entire five-minute sequence of tying up all the loose ends. But uh, it is... You, I don't know if you can make a, a Die Hard movie without this line. So uh, <laughs> I guess it's good they included it. Absolutely. Um, okay, finally, one last quote for us, and um, this is when John and Zeus are chasing down the dump trucks as they head towards the boat. Who is this guy? Houdini? Shit! Down there! Down there! This thing got airbags? Your side does. I don't know about my... Yeah, I just wanted to bring this up, because you could bring up a bunch of examples, but... Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis are genuinely funny together in this movie, um, and that adds a real comedic element that I think is comes across stronger than any of the other Die Hard films. Uh, as much as we would have loved to have more of Samuel L. Jackson, I do think his inclusion was fantastic, and I, I just want to appreciate that. Oh yeah, it, his him shouting McClane is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's like he asks if he has airbags, and then he realizes why he would ask that question. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, <sighs> all right, so those are gonna that's gonna do it for our quotes, Joey. I believe you know what time it is. It is time for us to go a little deeper. Okay, so the first thing, I don't know if I'm going to be able to play this or not, but the first thing I want to mention is that there is a significant leap motif in this movie, which is uh, the song When Johnny Comes Marching Home, which you may recognize as When the Ants Go Marching Home. It's the same song. Um, so it's been, you know, it has a bunch of different various lyrics. There's one about filling bowls or something like that. Anyway, it's a song that uh, originated in the U.S. Civil War, written by a man named Patrick Gilmore. Um, and it was originally submitted to the Library of Congress, I think, in 1863. So it is a kind of a, an old uh, song, and uh, I'm not sure what it serves beyond just kind of being a haunting uh, motif in the, in the background here. I don't know if that context means anything about Civil War or anything. Um, but, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, little thing they have in there. It, basically, it plays any time. Simon and his goons like execute more of their plan. It starts off quiet and then it gets louder and louder as more and more the plan gets more and more elaborate and more and more elements are brought into mm, it. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess it kind of goes along with this idea of maybe a rogue militia as sure. being like a military. But it's of not some like sort. a US militia, right? He's he's explicitly a foreign yes. person. Yeah. You know, so um yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh it's a it's a cool little moment though. 
And okay, so for the majority of this section, I have I have a big section I want to read for you. So this is about the Fed, the Federal Reserve, which is uh, where the heist takes place, the target of Jeremy Irons' uh, um, thievery. So the Federal Reserve System, this is from Wikipedia, by the way, also known as the Fed, Federal Reserve or simply the Fed, is the central banking system of the United States of America. It was created in December 23rd, uh, on December 23rd, 1913, with the enactment of the Federal Reserve Act after a series of financial panics, particularly the Panic of 1907, led to the desire for central control of the monetary system in order to alleviate financial crisis. Over the years... Events such as the Great Depression of the 1930s and the Great Recession during the 2000s have led to the expansion of the roles and responsibilities of the Federal Reserve System. The U.S. Congress established three key objectives for monetary policy in the Federal Reserve Act, maximizing employment, stabilizing prices, and moderating long-term interest rates. The first two objectives are sometimes referred to as the Federal Reserve's dual mandate. Its duties have expanded over the years and currently also include supervising and regulating banks, maintaining the stability of the financial system, and providing financial services to de depository institutions, the U.S. government, and foreign official institutions. The Fed also conducts research into the economy and provides numerous publications such as the Beige Report and the FRED database. So it's basically a big, uh, it, it's not just a building. There's a, it's a kind of a system of buildings um, and they all have these sort of various purposes, um, including maximizing employment and stabilizing prices, which is pretty big. Like those are pretty big things for any institution to take on. Um, and so the Fed is extremely powerful and important institution that we have in the U.S. Um, and so them coming under any sort of attack like this certainly would have a big effect on our uh, stability as a country. Right. Um, and I mean, some of the things that they do aren't just like, yeah, like physical having money type things. It's like setting interest rates and, and uh, right. pulling other levers on the economy that and, and also reporting on how things are going too so like what they're what they're talking about or what they see is also really important and and communicates and has effects throughout uh the world really right so Did they release the jobs report um that's a great question well uh, i don't know i just i know that the things the fed says like for instance when they announce what the interest rates will be impacts confidence in the stock market right so it's like again not actually doing anything necessarily but the because they have so much power it influences how other people act which influences the entire economy yeah so i know your question is though is there gold in there right and the answer is yes there is so none of the gold stored in the vault belongs to the new york fed or the federal reserve system the New York Fed acts as a guardian and custodian of the gold on behalf of account holders, which include the U.S. government, foreign governments, other central banks, and official international organizations. No individuals or private sector entities are permitted to store gold in the vault. Much of the gold in the vault arrived during and after World War II as many countries wanted to store their gold reserves in a safe location. Holdings in the gold vault continued to increase and peaked in 1973, shortly after the United States suspended co um, convertibility of dollars into gold for foreign governments. At its peak, the vault, the vault contained over 12,000 tons of monetary gold. Since that time, gold deposit and withdrawal activity has slowed, and the vault has experienced a gradual but steady decline in overall holdings. However, the, goal, the vault today remains the world's largest known depository of monetary gold. So, a perfect uh, setting for a heist, I think. It's, uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
it's interesting that like after World War II, uh, we were like, hey, everyone, give us your gold. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it safe for you, I promise. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, actually, and I'll get to this in a second, but um, we, the, it's actually about half as much gold in there now as there was in its peak about 50 years ago. Um, so it was about 6,000 tons now instead of just 12, when there was 12,000 uh, back in 1973. So uh, surprisingly, uh, gold bars are not 100% pure gold. Uh, if they were 100% pure, the balls would be, the, sorry, the bars would be too malleable to preserve their shape. This would render them difficult to store or move. Therefore, each bar contains a small amount of at least one other metal, such as copper, silver, or platinum. Tinges of color can indicate the type of alloy, however modest. Uh, from which a particular bar is composed. For, exa for, exa for instance, uh, traces of silver and platinum give the gold its a whitish shade. Copper is most often found in reddish bars, and iron produces a greenish hue. Um, so I actually try to find out how, like, if you stacked gold, if it would deform because it's so malleable, and uh, I, I don't think it actually would. I think you got to actually stack it more than a kilometer high in order for that to start happening. Although I didn't do the math myself, I just found it on Stack Exchange. So. It is interesting that they say that uh, uh, it, it is so malleable that you couldn't actually hold it. Um, a, a bar of gold weighs about 27 pounds, um, and it's worth about between 750 to 640 thousand dollars. So wow. this thing is about the size of like my water bottle, right? I mean, it's uh, you know, it's not that big. As you hold up a like classic Nalgene yeah. water bottle. And it's uh, it's worth probably twice or maybe three times as much as your house. Jesus. <laughs> and it's 27 pounds. It's really freaking heavy. So as of 2019, the vault housed approximately 497,000 gold bars with a combined weight of about 6,100 or 6,200 tons. The uh, vault is able to support the weight because it rests on the bedrock of Manhattan Island, 80 feet below street level and 50 feet below sea level. So he would have to dig underneath of it to get to it. I don't know how close this is the subway. I assume it's pretty far away from that. So how much gold is in there? Well, 497,000 gold bars, which within one gold bar uh, being, uh, I found in various numbers. I found one from like a U.S. Gold Bureau website, and I found another one on Google. Uh, they said between 750 and $646,000. Uh, dollars per gold bar. That means there's about 320 to 370 billion dollars of gold in the Federal Reserve right now. Unless my math is wrong. Well, unless the price of gold is going up, which I heard it is, you should invest. Uh, just well, kidding. I don't know, that, man. That's I, always I, what we're seeing on those commercials. This 646 number is actually what it was in February 2020. Um, which is lower than it was on the other page. And I don't know which one came first. It didn't give me a date of when mm. that was measured. So um, it really is best probably to measure the number of gold bars and then just calculate the number based on today's money. Uh, so, and that's what I did. So yeah, um, it's, uh, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of money in there. $320 billion is uh, a unfathomable about of gold uh 497,000 gold bars is impossible for me to imagine uh but that's uh that's where we're at so hope that's interesting yeah no and i totally agree that this is such a cool idea for a heist 
and it would have been a really cool idea for the fourth Die Hard movie if the world America suddenly had to reckon with losing the world's supply of gold and John yeah. McClane having to get it back. It's an obvious sequel that I don't know how it didn't get made. Yeah, it also kind of raises like logistics questions. You ever see that movie, uh, Triple Frontier, with uh, Oscar Isaac and um, Ben Affleck? No. Uh, it came out in Netflix, like I think a couple of years ago. Uh, basically, the premise is that they go down to somewhere in South America, maybe it's uh, Brazil or Bolivia, and they uh, find this drug dealer's house. They kill the guy, and then his house is just filled with money. Like the walls are insulated with dollar bills. And there's so much of it that they don't, they can't transport it. They try, they have a helicopter and they try to uh, get it on there and the helicopter crashes into a mountain. Um, and so they have to carry like as much gold as they can possibly carry um, all the way uh, to where they're trying to go to like a ship and they keep losing it. They, like there's one part where they're like carrying in the backs of donkeys and the donkey falls off the cliff and they just lose like a third of their money. Um, and at one point they have to like throw it into a hole and hope that they can come back to it. Like it's uh, it's crazy. So the, the first part of the movie is just them getting there. And then the rest of the movie is just them trying to figure out how to move this much cash. And if it was this much gold and it's that heavy, like, yeah, you're gonna need some dump trucks for sure. You may need more than 14. You may need a ton because they're, they're so heavy. It's ridiculously heavy. It anyway. reminds me of that episode of SpongeBob where I think it's the Pretty Patties episode where SpongeBob is selling so much, uh, Pretty Patties making so much money, he doesn't know what to do with it. And Mr. Krabs is horrified at what he decides to do. He's like, <laughs> first we tried burying it, then we tried burning it, and now we just decided to give it away. And there's just a booth set up where people are in line to get free money. Amazing. And he's like, come again, sir. And the guy's like, I'm getting back in line. <laughs> <laughs> just to get more free money. But yeah, it's an unfathomable, unfathomable amount of money. Um, certainly enough to buy a whole country, which again, could have been the premise for Die Hard 4, but I, I'll, I'll spare you any more <laughs> of my criticism of that. Okay, I believe it is time to do what we do at the end of every episode of Apple Chat, which is to deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to Die Hard with a Vengeance? A casual drive through Central Park. Nice. With a, just a, uh, a light Wilhelm scream That's right. uh, thrown in there. I will give this movie a payphone made of solid gold. <laughs> That's hilarious. That includes <laughs> it all, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. And they had to put gold coins in it to yes. make it work. <laughs> Doubloons, even. Uh, <laughs> but that is going to do it for our episode on Die Hard with a Vengeance. Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we're doing My Cousin Vinny. Very and good, yes. Do it in person, perhaps. Yeah, we'll be together for that one, which is going to be epic. Um, but until then, if you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Audible, too. We're and, everywhere. Yes, brand new. Yeah, we just got approved on Audible, which also puts us on Amazon Music. So Apple Chat everywhere you can possibly look. And if you like this podcast, then tell your friends. You can just say, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? Yes, very good. <laughs> you can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Affable Chat, or send us an email, affablechat at gmail.com. We also have a YouTube channel that has videos on it uh, about all sorts of things. Yes. Never know what to say. <laughs> That's what they have on YouTube, <laughs> it's on videos. That's almost all they have. Almost exclusively. Yeah, so check us out there. Apple Chat is live Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern. That's twitch.tv slash Chat. 
that's going to do it for this episode. For Apple Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>